If you have your Bible, if you would please turn into uh, Luke chapter number 10 this evening. We're still taking and covering the Beatitudes and in uh, study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this happens to be in uh, that particular uh, category. It has to be, uh, what about number 6 or 7, I guess. Let me uh, maybe verify what I'm talking about here. In Matthew chapter 5. This beatitude out of verse number 7. And that uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Um, this would be the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I'm having trouble with numbers. You notice that? I can't get 8 and I can't get 5, but it's uh, number 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. By the way, Dwayne, that's not your sister tonight. Let me uh, let me see. that. Uh, would you introduce your guests, if you don't mind, please? Yes. Ashley, it's good to have you here, and I understand you were here before, but I thought you were his sister, so I didn't say a word about it. But it's good to have you here. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you very much. Good to have you. In Matthew chapter 5, we're talking about verse number 7, which is the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let me say what, uh, remind you that what it doesn't mean, it does not mean that if you set out to go from here and wherever you go this evening, and you are merciful to somebody, the verse is not telling you that people who you show mercy to will show mercy back. That's not what the verse is saying. All of the verses talk about what God does on his end. For instance, go back to verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that God, who owns the kingdom of heaven, gives it to those people who are poor in spirit. In verse number 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It doesn't mean we comfort ourselves. It means God comforts us. Verse number 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, the earth doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to the Lord. So the fact is, if it's going to be given and they're going to get it, he has to give it. So it's God giving it. Then so when you come to verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Only the Lord can fill people with righteousness. You and I can't fill ourselves with righteousness. And so number 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You'll get it from him. Same place all these other items are, are given and where they come from. I said in the, the title of the message for this evening, it was the ideal of a real-life experience or real-life lesson. Let me take you to Luke chapter number 10 and call your attention to chapter 10, verse 25 of Luke. Luke 10, 25 is what in many Bibles, and probably um, I'd say nine out of every ten here, is, it's going to say the parable of the Good Samaritan. If your Bible has a divider at verse number 24 to 25, and it, if it has a break there, if it says it's a parable of the Good Samaritan, would you raise your hand? Does you just have a break there and say that? Okay. Let me tell you before we're done, I will disagree with that. And let me show you why I disagree with it when we get there, okay? So just keep that in mind. Let's begin verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the, in the law? How readest thou? Uh, verse 27, he, he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might, and thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 28, He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Verse 29, But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, the text from that point down is a, 
I think, relatively simple to understand. Verse 25, he tells us this is a certain lawyer. It means he's a, a scribe. He's a, there was Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Scribes were what we would refer to as lawyers, but they did not go to a courtroom. Uh, just like judges in the Old Testament were not men who sat in a courtroom. Uh, judges were more military than they were administrators of law. It was a matter that a judge might settle disputes under an oak tree, but he did not have a courtroom. Uh, he was picked or hand-directed by the Lord, and he became a judge. And that's what we're studying on Wednesday night with the man Gideon. Uh, Gideon was out under a tree threshing wheat, and God said, Hey, you're going to be my man. And Gideon was one of the judges in the Old Testament. But just so the word lawyer in the New Testament does not mean somebody who defends somebody in a court of law. A lawyer, in this case, means somebody who knew the Scriptures Old Testament-wise so well he could explain to you what they meant, and they also meant they transcribed them, they wrote them. They would write them in documents and give them to people. They would uh, prepare them for the synagogues. They used them on many every kind of occasion that had a religious significance to it. Somewhere there'd be a scribe who would have handling of the law. So that's who this guy is. That means that when the Lord asked him what the law meant, he didn't mean uh, what's the law of Jerusalem or what's the law concerning where you can park your chariot. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what does the law of God say? What, does, what was it that God gave Moses in the law? What was it that it said? And that's what he speaks of. In verse number 25, he also says to the master, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? When we closed the last time we were together, I told you that that's a contradictory concept. You don't do anything to inherit something. Uh, you don't have to do anything to inherit something. Uh, my guess is... Uh, there have been people walked up to you and, and said to you uh, at some point, you look like your father or you look like your mother. And, and the ideal is you inherited their looks or characteristics. And people associate you with them because you seem the same way. You look the same way. You look similar. Uh, there's some identificating mark characteristic about it. And they say, you inherited your mother's looks or you inherited your father's looks. And in Barry's case, uh, you don't inherit any hair. That's the way it is. It just happens that way. You know what I mean? That's for the art issue. And the point made is that this is a case where a guy says, how and what do I do that I can get this, this eternal life thing? And so the question is, is uh, contradictory in the first place. So even though he's a scribe, it doesn't mean he's wise. And some people can do that. They can handle the scriptures, they can look at them, but they still may not be wise because they miss some points that are in the process exceedingly important. Notice in, in uh, the text here, by the way, when he talks about this inheritance, uh, the story, and you know it well, is where the, um, the uh, prodigal son left, and he asked for what he was coming to him, what was his lot, in, uh, that's over in uh, Luke chapter 15, where he asked and said, uh, hey, I, I want what's coming to me, and I'm going to hit the road. And uh, that's exactly what that young man did. He got his portion, and, and he, he left. 
but he had not had to do anything to get it. It was an inheritance. And so that's the same word that's used in the context here in chapter number 10. So anyway, the point is that uh, none of these things that this guy is asking about concerning getting the eternal life by doing something, uh, obviously they are not correct. Our Lord doesn't show him up and make him look foolish. He just goes off with the idea, verse number 26, he says, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And so the Lord has simply uh, not answering a fool according to his folly. Uh, he's not going to make this guy look any worse than he already is looking. So in his questioning him, he wants to know, um, uh, what do you think the law says about getting eternal life? What does, it, does it address itself to this? And that's what he means by the question, how readest thou? It really would be our way of saying, how do you interpret the verses that have to do with this subject? How do you interpret them? And um, this lawyer, of course, he wasn't, um, um, he wasn't, I don't think he was thinking straight. And let me explain why. Look for where you are in Luke chapter number 10. Look over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And look at, you would, at verse number 7. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 7. This is the uh, uh, incident of uh, our Lord under the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4 is. You know, the Bible says Jesus would led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So this is in that exchange between the Lord and the devil. In chapter 4 of Matthew, verse number 7, Jesus said unto him, because uh, uh, the devil said something to him, If you be the Son of God, verse 6, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. That's what... Matthew chapter five and ver- or chapter four verse six says, and then verse seven said, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, what's interesting is uh, that statement, "It is written," means it's in the Old Testament. In other words, it's in the law. What Jesus quoted the devil was in the law. And what is written in the law, it came out of Deuteronomy about chapter 6. And what uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, in effect, is you do not tempt the Lord God. It's the same word that's translated in Luke chapter number 10 and verse number 25 when the Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Same words. So the lawyers already flunked the test about knowing the law because the law's already said, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you do not tempt the Lord God. Here he comes in chapter number 10 of Luke and he tempts the Lord God. He tempts him. He tests him. He checked him. And the whole idea is he was uh, in a way proving him. I think what the lawyer really wanted to do was to prove what Jesus had been accused of and that is that he did not obey the law that he, he ran roughshod over it. He paid no attention to it. And the consequence with that would have been if it had been proven that Jesus didn't keep it, then it would have been proven he was not the Messiah because the Messiah was going to keep the uh, law to the T. He was going to fulfill it. And if he could prove that Jesus ran roughshod over it, then he would make that point. So I'm not so sure the lawyer really wanted to know about how to get eternal life. 
as much as he did, he wanted to show up Jesus is not real true Messiah and not even a candidate for such a position. So first off, in verse number 25, he tempts him. Jesus asks him what's written in the law about this question of eternal life in verse 26. And then is, uh, you note the question, verse 25 question, <clears throat> and Jesus' answered is, uh, what is written? And by the way, there's a, uh, the, what readest thou, that word that uh, I mentioned means basically how do you interpret it, uh, is a, a word that in the Greek language it's defined as uh, to know with certainty. Um, it, it would carry the idea for us that when you read the Bible, um, you need to know the meanings of the words so you can be sure of what it means. And if it means, if it means what it says, and it says what it means, then you ought to believe it. And if you ever find the things in the Bible that it doesn't mean what it says, then you have to be careful about that because the idea would be that somebody's trying to fuzzy the purpose of what you were to do with it. You know, um, that's one of the things we have trouble with, uh, interpretation. Some teachers, preachers, liberals, uh, they twist the truth and they make it uh, soft. They, uh, uh, they make it so that you can't be sure what the Lord meant by it. But the rule of thumb, and especially in hermeneutics, is if the first reading makes good sense, then seek no other sense. And uh, that doesn't mean that, as I believe that we should, use every means you can to understand it. I think you ought to have a good Bible dictionary uh, every time you sit down and read the Bible. I think you ought to have a good Bible dictionary, and I recommend Unger's or a pictorial, Zondervan's pictorial, a Davis dictionary is good. Um, all of those dictionaries are good, and there are many others that could be equal to them. But the fact is you ought to have a good Bible dictionary every time you read the Scriptures, and you should never read a text of a word you don't know without stopping and finding out what that word means. Otherwise, you're not going to understand the context. See, every word is given by inspiration of God, every one of them. If that's true, then every word is important. And you shouldn't go on just because you don't know what the word means. You should stop and say, what's this word mean right here? I don't know, I don't know what it means. When we were in school, we had to take a book of the Bible, and Dr. Lackey was our teacher, who a man I greatly respect who's with the Lord now, but he taught me, taught me a great love for the Scriptures. And he taught me how to study the Scriptures. And one of the assignments we had, we get to pick one book of the New Testament. We had to rewrite that whole book of the New Testament. And I mean write it. Uh, you could not type it. You had to write it by hand. And so, obviously, I'm, a, I'm not too silly. I'm not foolish. I went to looking for short books of the Bible, you know, the New Testament. Well, foolish me, I'd been hearing about uh, Mark being the... Uh, we used to refer to it as the businessman's gospel because uh, everything is abbreviated in Mark. You don't have everything in Mark that you have in Matthew, Luke, or John. You have abbreviated thing. Well, I'm thinking that good book of the Bible is abbreviated. And so I tackle Mark, and I start reading and writing. And boy, all of a sudden, I run into things in there. I, and the word was, if you can't explain it, then you have to define it. You have to write it in your notes as you're translating the text. That is, you're, as you're rewriting the text onto paper, you have to write in what it means. 
if you have a question, because if you don't and you turn these notes in and he hands them back to you in the class and you get up and start explaining, you've got to explain what it is. And if you don't explain it to the class right, then you've got to rewrite the book again. So nobody's going to want to rewrite this thing twice. So I began to sit down and every time I'd find a word I didn't understand, I'd go look it up. I'd find a Hebrew, I mean a Greek New Testament. I'd find a Strong's Concordance and, and I'd define that word and I'd put it right into the text. I got through with the thing and I was very pleased with it. No, I was proud of it. I mean, flat out proud. I took that thing to Dr. Lackey, handed it to him, I said, you're going to love this. He looked at it, and he skipped through a few pages, flipped over a few, and he said, Mr. Henry, you've done a good job. I said, I knew it. I knew it. I've, I've aced this thing. We came to class about four weeks later when it came my turn because I rose, uh, you know, the row I was in, I was at the front end of the row. He came to me, handed my paper back, and said, Mr. Henry, would you get up and just sort of review your, uh, your work on Mark? I'm sitting there, and he uh, starts out, and he comes up with three words that I'd never heard in my life. And he said, Mr. Henry, those are in the book of Mark. And I'm standing here, he's sitting there, and I turn to him and I said, excuse me, sir, what book of Mark? He said, the book of Mark. And I said, would you mind telling me where? And I said, I'll find it in my notes, I'm sure I've got it here. He said, Mr. Henry, it wasn't there. He told me what those words were, and uh, I just didn't remember. I said, I don't remember those words. And I'm thinking to myself, he's made a mistake, but I'm going to go along with this. He's the teacher. I respect him. He's an authority. I'm submissive to him. We're just going to, I made a mistake. I said, I'll have, to, I'll have to check that out. And he said, yes, sir. And he said, I've marked it in your notes. Sure enough, on those pages, he'd circle a word in there, and I, right there it was. Right there it was. I began to look at it before the class because I was supposed to explain portions of that text. And as I looked at it, I realized you'll not be able to explain this text unless you know what that word right there means. And the book of Mark study under Dr. Lackey taught me one of the most valuable lessons I think you can learn in Bible study. It's not a matter of just being able to get the overview unless you got, he calls it, the underview. And the underview is to know what every word means in its context. Not just means in general, but in its context. What does it mean there? In this passage of Scripture in, in Luke chapter 10, there are several words that could be classified in uh, that kind of group. The one here that's a Greek word that's written in verse 26 for the word readest is a word that's akin to the word, uh, well, we, we use the word genosco uh, uh, is the word for to know. If you say uh, uh, to know, you need to know this. The word, however, in verse 26 where he uses the word readest is an agnosco. It's a heavy-duty word. It means you really got to know what this means. And what it means is it's an interpretation of what the text of Scripture is saying in its context. So the Lord Jesus is asking him, not only do you know what the law says, do you know what the law means in that context? And I think the Lord was pointing out, he's not going to find in the law anything that says about eternal life and how to get it. I think the Lord is directing to the, to the, the reality that there is no salvation in keeping the law. I believe that was the bottom line for him. But 
it goes further. Look, if you would, in verse number 27. He answering said, this is the lawyer now, the scribe. He answered and said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, or thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy, thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said unto him, thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. And the fact of the matter is, he doesn't say, this do, and you can have eternal life. He said, this do, and you can live. Uh, some suggest he may be uh, sort of crimping the illustration to make the point that you still won't have eternal life uh, because this won't earn that. You have to have that through the faith in Christ. But what he does say is that you can have a, the word for life would be, you can have a real life. You can have a life that is uh, uh, valuable, fulfilling, uh, useful, helpful, beneficial. People are going to like to have you around kind of person. So the idea is some believe that that's what the Lord was saying to him. It's, you're going to have a better life if you do what I've just, and you've just told me that you should do concerning this matter. Notice something else then. When you get to verse number 28, <clears throat> when he gets to verse number 28, he says, and he says unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Verse 29, But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, this part of the, the question gets us over to the issue of mercy. And, uh, and uh, you, can, you can begin to see when uh, the Lord changes gears with him and uh, he changes gears with the Lord uh, concerning getting this business of the who is my neighbor issue. Uh, it's going to change directions in a hurry and it's gonna, uh, the Lord's going to actually change the question. He's going to answer it, but you're going to, he's going to turn it around to answer it. And uh, I'll show you what I mean. First off, the question is, who is my neighbor? Uh, this main thrust of what the Lord shares uh, is to show uh, how far this man needs to go to be and to show a spirit of being merciful. And the question is designed, uh, this man shows himself to prove he wants to know just how far I have to go. It's like saying, uh, how many people do I have to help to say I'm a helper? Um, how many people do I have to be kind to to be called kind? The question is, and the part of the, the lawyer is, how far do I have to go? If you're saying that I need to love my neighbor as myself, uh, I want to know who the neighbor is, and I want to know how many of these neighbors i got to like. That's the point. How far do I have to go? Uh, it's like having a standard, and I want to go that far, but I don't want to go any further. And that be, is by all stretch of the imagination exactly what this man is asking. Now, Christ is going to turn this thing uh, upside down. Um, he's really going to make the question, whose neighbor am I? And that's what he's going to answer. So I want to call your attention to that. Look, if you would. <coughs> he's saying... It's how far do I go and so forth. And by the way, I was reading one of the history books in my office about Jewish history. The rabbinical law and the rabbinical, um, what we call the um, rabbis who taught the law, not a scribe, but someone in a synagogue setting, uh, they would talk about and, and discuss as much about how far you could go to hate an enemy as you could how far you had to go to love a friend or a neighbor. And in that law, it recorded that a true neighbor was anyone with a relationship to the Jewish nation. If you didn't have a, a blood relationship to the Jewish nation, the rabbinical law said you didn't have to like the guy. You don't have to like him. I mean, uh, if you're his neighbor, you, you should get along with him, but you don't have to like him. 
it contradicted much of what the New Testament would teach, and it certainly is not something that we would endorse as Bible-believing people, but that was the rabbinical law. Here, notice carefully, when uh, you come to this uh, incident in, in our Lord's explanation, notice from where he begins in verse number 30. Jesus answered and said, and uh, remember he's been talking to a certain lawyer, verse 25, Now, verse 30, Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Uh, Verse 32, Likewise, a Levite, when he was at this place, he came, looked on him, and he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, But a certain Samaritan. As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went uh, went to him, and bound up his wounds, poured in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, and brought him to an an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35, And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and he gave to them the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever, whatever else thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay him, or repay thee. Verse 36, Which now of these... Three, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. Now stop there. The question is, which of these guys was a neighbor to him? Not uh, who is my neighbor, but the question is, which of these guys was a neighbor? So the Lord takes the question and turns it upside down and says, no, the question is not how, how little can I do to be done with this requirement The question is, how many people out there can I be a neighbor to? So the Lord changes the dynamic of it, and and he really turning it up on on its head, and I think probably made this lawyer think twice about the whole process, not certain about what it is. The thing about it is, and I think it's important, in this case, most would agree, and if you've ever read the text or studied it much, the assumption is in verse number 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, and went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and then he fell among thieves. So first issue that always is raised, who was this guy? Even though we don't have a name, what nationality do we assume that he is? Well, from Jerusalem to Jericho was more traveled by Jews. Uh, there were others who traveled it, but the most, without doubt, was Jewish. So the assumption is we're talking about a Jewish man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He fell among thieves, and this bad circumstance befell him. That's, that seems to be the very clear uh, direction. And uh, notice that in this particular setting, uh, everything that's, that's taking place about it, uh, understand that the uh, Samaritan... As the fellow who's going to end up uh, doing the right thing, you know uh, that that's the case in verse 33. After you have the uh, the priest and you uh, have this uh, Levite, and then you have a Samaritan show up. So you have what we would assume, and I admit it's an assumption that it's a Jew who is the one who has been a crime perpetrated against him. He's the guy that's been hurt. Then you have a, a priest a Levi and a Samaritan come by. And what happens is the, uh, the priest and the Levi do nothing. I mean, uh, they really do not a single thing to help this guy. Uh, they look at him, um, and they, they, they walk on by. They, they just really don't have any seeming concern for him whatsoever. 
And what's interesting about that is that um, the uh, Jewish lawyer, uh, even when he finishes, and uh, we, we would assume Jewish lawyer because he was a scribe, and by him being a scribe, it would have been the Old Testament law that he would have been a scribe over, that is, he would have been the scholar of, expected to be. And therefore, being a Jewish lawyer, when it comes down to the thing, notice carefully, he says in verse 36, which now of these three thinkest thou thy was that was neighbor unto this man or him that fell among the thieves? And verse 37, the lawyer speaks up and says, He that showed mercy on him. Did you notice he didn't say the Samaritan? The Jew ain't even going to mention his name. He didn't have nothing to do with Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. And the Jewish folks were pure blood, and they ain't talking about Samaritans. So he won't even call his name. He won't even say, well, you referred to the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan in the story. This lawyer won't even say that. Now, the lawyer did go straight to the point the Lord was making about people being merciful. And he said, the guy who showed mercy, that's the guy. But he didn't call him by his nationality. He didn't say, oh, it's, it's the Samaritan in this story. What's interesting about that, it's probably a, a good that there is no reference to what nationality this man was who was injured uh, because then he becomes all of our neighbor. All of us will maybe bump into a guy like this. We'll find someone who has need, and you and I then get the privilege of doing something to be of assistance to him. Uh, the Samaritan uh, didn't ask him. In verse number 33, it says, A certain Samaritan journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he asked him 12 questions. Did you see that? That's in the text right there. He wanted to know where he was born. He wanted to know who his parents were. He wanted what kind of job he did. And he wanted to know if he could pay him back. Um, that's not what it says, and that's the big point. The Samaritan didn't say a thing about, uh, can you help pay me back if I invest all this in you? Because you recognize what's going on here. This Samaritan didn't ask a single thing about that. The point is that the Lord was teaching was that the injury, the sorrow, the need, the sympathy, the help, the care that was needed to take care of this guy overshadowed all the questions that you might feel like asking. Think of it this way. What if this guy was a Muslim? A Muslim. And you have this Jewish guy comes down there, and um, he looks at him, and um, maybe he can just tell by looking at him, this guy's a Muslim. Now, I'm not going to nurture this guy back to health so he can turn around and kill me. I'm not going to do that. Well, the Samaritan just as easily done the same thing because the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans didn't get along very well anyway. So it could have well just as well been that the Samaritan could have thought that. But he didn't. But he didn't. It pretty much makes every man the neighbor of every other man in the world. Every person becomes your neighbor and my neighbor, no matter what their background is, if... They have this kind of need. And the Lord paints the picture. He's the one that tells the story. And so it is a matter that it's not a matter of this being uh, somewhat unique and different than what could have been. This was a common problem of people traveling between cities and robbers, marauders, coming on and attacking them and taking their money and so forth. Now, 
back up one time and one more time before we finish, that first off we tell you that it's a good question with a bad motive. Uh, this whole thing concerning the scribe, the lawyer, uh, he, he gives the correct answer to the Lord's question. The Lord said he did. But uh, like a lot of people, he didn't apply it to himself. And I mean by that, what, uh, yeah, what it comes down to is uh, he admits that he did not love the Lord the way that he should, and therefore there's no room to love a neighbor. There's no room to love a neighbor. It's a requirement that if you're going to love your neighbor, it will be absolute that you love the Lord the way that the, the um, lawyer, the scribe, quoted the Old Testament to say. You need to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your mind, your heart, life, mind, soul, spirit, everything about you. You need to love Him with everything about you. Because many of the things that you're called on to do, you would not be able to do by just the common love of man. And this is a case in point. And so it boils down to, and I would tell you that nowhere in the story does Jesus say that this is a parable. Uh, when he starts talking in, in verse number um, 29, he said, uh, or, 20, or verse 30, Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jericho to Jerusalem, fell among thieves, and so forth. There are two things about it, or maybe three, but let me point out one. That is that I don't believe this is a parable for this reason. Uh, Jesus is talking to a Jewish man, a scribe, a man who's a lawyer. He is telling the story about two particular Jewish groups of people, the priest and the Levite. And he's also telling you that the person who the crime was perpetrated against, was, we believe, was Jewish, coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you have a, a, a Levite, a priest, and the victim is a Jew. The fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ uh, was wise, very wise. It's not likely that he would have told this story in that context and made the Jews look that bad under the guise of just giving a story. I believe the story is true. And I believe that's why there's no argument and that's why there's no lawyer rising up and rebellion saying, wait, 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 this story, this is not a good story. You're not telling us the way it should be told. I, there's no rebuttal to the story whatsoever. I believe it's not a parable. I believe it was an event that took place and I believe the lawyer knew it. And therefore, he knew full well what the story was going to say and how it was going to go and how it was going to end. And I believe that's why that it is concluded in the text the way that it is. I don't believe it's a parable. I don't believe there's any of the characteristics of it that make it a parable. Um, I believe sometimes we label stories as parables when we don't know necessarily how to handle them. I believe that it is a true story. And I believe that's why there is no rebuttal to it. And that's why I don't think there's anything out of the ordinary in it. And that's the point. This guy was injured, robbed, and it was a common occurrence. But this particular one was a difference because when this man was injured, he could not help himself, obviously. And a priest comes down. And the priest, in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse number 31, a certain priest that passed that way, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite, when he was at that place, came, looked on him, and passed by on the other side. So here you have two of the Jewish community's best. 
the priests and the Levi. And Jesus said they were useless in helping this man. And may I say to you, if you've been sitting in an audience and you were among Jewish people and Jesus was up there telling you and he just really slapped the Jews in the face for saying your, your spiritual helpers were useless. They didn't do a thing to help this man. Now, may I tell you, I get a little uncomfortable and I'm not Jewish. You know, uh, um, I get uncomfortable because the priest and the Levi represent a religious connection to the synagogue. In our case, representative of the church. And the issue the Lord brings out is these religious people who should have known better did not lift a finger. They didn't do a thing to help this man. And so the point's well taken that the people who should know did nothing. And the man who you would assume would have done nothing did something. It just sort of undermines our whole reasoning about, as a Christian, we ought to be prompted to do something for somebody who can't help themselves. And we should not look at who they are and uh, what is this going to do in the long haul? What kind of uh, impact is this going to have? It's, uh, somebody wrote this. He said, it's much easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve the neighborhood by improving the people in the neighborhood with God's word and work demonstrating to them how Christ would have operated had he been present. And that seems to be the thing that's missing here. It's easy to try to make excuses for the priest, the preacher, and the Levite, but they do not get a pass with the Lord. Uh, I believe, as I read it, I was thinking of that verse, that he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. To know to do good, and you have an opportunity staring you in the face, and here's this victim who's bloodied, and he's in pain, and he's in agony. Uh, his club, probably his clothes had been torn, and he bruised and battered, and for all I know, he may have been unconscious. And boy, just begged for help. But the two religious people pass him by and pay no attention to him whatsoever. Interesting. The point, the picture that the Lord points is at the hated Samaritan helps a Jew and who is his fellow Jew has totally ignored the Levite and the priest. And notice the, the length, if you would. Look at verse 33 to 35. The length to which this Samaritan went to help this man. I mean, he didn't just, he just didn't lift his head and give him a little bit of water. Verse 36 says, At the certain Samaritan he journeyed came, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine, he set him on his own beast, which means the man had to walk. This uh, Samaritan had to walk to the place where he was going because he puts this man on his beast. He brought him to the inn. He took care of him. How long that took, we have no idea. And we don't know what the Samaritan's business was, so we don't know if he had a job and he was suspended for a while and he was going to take care of this. We don't know any of those things about him. And again, that's not important. What is important, verse 35, on the morrow, when he departed, that meant he spent the night so the next day when he departed, he took out two pence, he gave it to the man of the host, that is the man of the inn, and he said to him, take care of him. You take care of him now, and whatever else I, you spend on him, the more, when I come back, I will repay you. Now, um, that's a whole lot of stuff. That's really going out of your way. 
I mean, that's a that's like somebody having um, um, some kind of accident on a back road, and you just suspending your schedule and you doing everything in your power because they can't get to an EMT or some EMT can't get to them, and you just go you bend over backward to get these people out of this accident, get them to the hospital, and you get to the hospital and say to them, "Look here, here, I'm going to pay you for tonight, and if they're going to spend the night and spend some other time, uh, they may not have insurance. I want to take care of that here. Just here, just take care of it. whatever it takes. And when I come back through." Here, I'll finish it off. And that just seems in our day and age, that's, that's unbelievable. But this Samaritan did it and never grumbled, never complained, never, never said, you know, man, how much does a guy have to do to take care of his neighbor? Uh, he didn't say any of that. And he doesn't relate any of that. Just think about it. There's no logical reason, no human explanation why this Samaritan should adjust his schedule to take care of this man in this need? And the answer is obvious. Mercy doesn't need a reason. Mercy doesn't ask for a reason. Mercy doesn't say to God, I, 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 I don't have time to take care of this guy. Mercy doesn't do any of that. Mercy does first and foremost, it just forgets itself. Itself. It doesn't say, "Hey, I got, I, I can't, I can't take care of this. I got to go do this. I got to get that done. I got to get this taken care of. I got to work that out." That's why there's very little acts of mercy that are being done in our day and age, because we're so busy, we hardly take care of ourselves. Let us own some victim out here somewhere. Remember, the lawyer's question was, "Who is my neighbor?" I think he's hoping to, to get around the personal responsibility. But the Lord's question wouldn't let that happen. He asked him very simply, which of these three men was a neighbor to this man who was attacked? And it all boils down to this question. Who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I go out and and help and assist and show mercy to that would fulfill this? By the way, that's exactly what this verse or passage closed with. Look at verse 37. And he said, the lawyer said, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, and this is the way we close this beatitude, Go and do thou likewise. That's the best way to close beatitude number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Go and do likewise. And the Lord gave us the illustration. I hope you'll follow it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for explanations of how life is to be lived in accordance to your word. That's put right in the scriptures. Thank you for this beatitude. Thank you that it assures us that as we show mercy to people, that you'll show mercy to us. And not that you haven't already, you already have in so many ways, but it assures us that you shall continue. And I pray that you'll help us to look for opportunities to show people that we're neighbors to them, that we want to be a help and a blessing to them. And Father, help us to not ask the questions and help us to learn from the Samaritan. Not asking what nationality he was, where he's from, what side of town is he from, or what side of the tracks is he on. None of those questions matter. Our responsibility as a believer is that we just simply show mercy. I pray tonight that you'll help this preacher, help him to show mercy to people appropriately, properly, in accordance to your word. I pray for our people that you'll help them to show mercy. Help us to be a merciful people. 
Help us to never forget the rock from which we've been hewn, the pit which we were taken from. Remind us that it was of your good mercy that you've done all that you've done for us. And it's your grace that continues thereafter to sustain us. And I pray that we would be gracious and kind and merciful to people all about us. So I pray you help us to learn from this. Help us to be doers of the word now and not just hearers. And may it change the lives of people about us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, please. We'll sing one stanza of 390.